Welcome to Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer, where cancer survivors, caregivers, and others touched by cancer share their stories. The Max Mallory Foundation presents this podcast in honor and memory of Max Mallory, who died at age 22 from testicular cancer. I'm your host, Joyce Lofstrom, a young adult and adult cancer survivor, and Max's mom. This is Joyce, and with me today for our podcast is Charlene Adams, and Charlene is a geneticist and a cancer epidemiologist. She earned a PhD in genetics from the University of Washington and an MPH in genetic epidemiology from Johns Hopkins University. She studied uh, the incidence of familiar testicular germ cell tumors as a cancer research training fellow at the National Cancer Institute and is currently a bioinformatics postdoctoral research fellow in the Lemos lab at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is focused on cancer predisposition and aging. So Charlene, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and sharing your wonderful background with us on cancer research. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I was moved by your son Max's story. Thank you so much. That's, um, that's how we got started with the podcast and I, how I found you because I know you've done some research into testicular cancer. But before we get to that, I know you have lots to talk about. And we'll start with one of uh, your early positions as a hospital chaplain and how that really influenced what you do now. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in my early 20s, I had just finished a graduate degree in in linguistics and was wanting to help people. Didn't really have all of the words for what that was, but now I know it was something, what we call it, a humanistic instinct. And I followed it all the way to divinity school. And in divinity school, I uh, was trained as a, a chaplain and worked at Columbia Presbyterian hospital in in Manhattan. And so what I did there was walk around to different patient rooms and floors. I had a cardiac intensive care unit, a pediatric neonatal unit, really, and a, a cancer wing. And so normally what I would do would just make rounds and check in on, on whoever was there. But often I would be paged to show up. Uh, when there was an emergency. It could have been because a, a baby just died or somebody came in from a, a car accident or, or something. And the, so the nurses wanted me to be there for the families. And it was a, it was a moving and a highly emotional you know, job. The hardest part about it was feeling so powerless over everything. I mean, the very nature of, of it was that people didn't want to be there. And there was a lot of confusion, anger, fear, and not just from the patients and the families and the hospital staff, but then I would also feel those emotions being part of all of it. And so that was a lot of what the job was, was dealing with all of the unknowns and the inability to intervene in something that was out of everybody's control, even though the doctors and the nurses were doing everything that they could. And so that that experience of 
feeling so helpless and out of control led to some deep soul searching, as we could say on my part, where I wanted to be, I wanted to have the job. I wanted to be the chaplain, if you will, that prevented people from being in the hospital, not the person who was there once people were in the hospital. But yeah, yeah. What was that? And at 22 years old, I didn't know what that was. (laughs) Right. I don't think any of us would. So, you know, so then I know you told me that this, uh, this job influenced how you studied or led the rest of your life. So Mm -hmm. how did that happen as a chaplain? Yeah, indeed. So part of this was that I had this, the, um, it was the patients that I had, you know, when I look back at this, I had the, the, the newborns and I had the cancer patients. And so my first job after leaving divinity school was helping babies. (laughs) So I, I ended up working in public health in a genetics position. And I didn't at the time have any training in in genetics, but I knew what to say to them. So this is a program where, you know, every baby born in the U.S. in a hospital is screened for a bunch of genetic disorders. I'm not talking about things like Down syndrome or things that people might think about during pregnancy. These are these are disorders that are very, very rare and that most people wouldn't even, they don't know about them, but we have an ability to test for them. So these are conditions that are usually what people would think of as sudden infant death. Okay. Where the, yep. Where the baby looks totally fine. Everybody thinks the baby is fine. And then all of a sudden they're dead. And this happens because the baby has a genetic um, mutation. It is a mutation. And, and, and so, uh, but these are the, the conditions that get screened for in newborn screening are ones that, you know, if you identify it, that the baby has this in time, there's a treatment. So that's the idea is prevent identifying who has these conditions and then just give it, getting them on treatment. And, and that prevents them from either dying or having in many cases, some pretty serious disability. So it, I ended up working, doing exactly what I'd had that impulse to do as a chaplain, you know, figuring out how to find, like it's finding the invisible thing that is making people sick and coming in and um, intervening before the sickness even happens. And so that was my entry into genetics and this is, and public health. So on the job, I learned Mendelian genetics and also the sciences of public health, which are epidemiology, the study of diseases and its and their prevention in populations, and biostatistics, which is the well, it's it's the statistics that you apply to biology. So I was using all of those in an, what we call an applied position. So this wasn't, I wasn't acting as a researcher. I was using the science to do similar to how doctors use science to um, make treatment decisions. We were just doing, we were, we were treating uh, the population really. Um, So, but in doing that, I found this, that I wanted to do more and to understand even more. And what that meant is that I wanted to be a researcher. And so I'm getting even closer to that goal uh, that 
of being able to help far in advance that I had the instinct for as a chaplain. And so I went from the newborn screening job into uh, a master's program at Johns Hopkins, a master's in, in public health in genetic epidemiology. And that that what that is 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 you're looking at genetics in the uh, the population, so it's different than than figuring out you know what a particular person's genetics are. It, it's using it using knowledge of genetics. You have like a whole pool of people, and then as most people who are in research end up doing, I went and had a, a fellowship somewhere and with, which just means you get more training by by people who are already doing what you're interested in and i did that at the national cancer institute in their clinical genetics branch and they were studying testicular cancer and they were studying ribosomopathies and uh, telomere biology disorders and uh, neurofibromatosis and other diseases that run in families and so it was similar to newborn screening in that they were looking at these rare mutations that, that happen, but in families, and you can track a disease in, in, in families. And so I learned about testicular cancer there. Uh, my first paper was, was on that. And then I went to the University of Washington for my PhD. So now I'm a postdoc, what we call postdoctoral, which means that I've got my PhD and now I'm working as a scientist in, in a lab right, right now in the Lemos lab. That's sort of how that, you know, came, came together. Wow, that's very impressive. And I, I think, too, as I listen to you, it tells me how closely uh, intertwined all of our biology, genetics, everything is really comes together and you need an understanding, I think, of a lot of it or all of it to really, um, I guess, research back to what you're oh, doing. Oh, you know, absolutely. And that, I think that's such an important, you know, insight. I, in fact, this came up just yesterday in, in, my, in my lab, in the, in the Lemos lab, where we were talking about what it is that, that we do and even what identity we have as, as scientists. And, you know, my, my, my boss, my, my, it, the investigator that, that I work for, he said, well, you know, when people ask him what he does, he says, well, it depends on who's asking. Because it, you, sometimes you will say, well, I'm a geneticist. Or sometimes you'll say, you know, I'm a, an epidemiologist. But really, you throw everything you have at trying to understand disease. So if you need to be an epidemiologist, you learn epidemiology to answer the questions, or you learn genetics to answer the questions. You just have to keep learning. So yeah, that's exactly right. It, there is a real blend of uh, the different sciences to answer these questions. Well, with that in mind, I think it's a good segue then to your specific area of research, because I know you are working in public health. Um, you also are working in cancer research, which in my mind are pretty broad terms. So how about, can you narrow it down and just give us a, a look at what you're studying in, in cancer research? Yep, that, that's right. And, it, and that's also a good question because there are people who are, you know, will use uh, maybe an animal model or uh, cells to, to study uh, what me mechanisms uh, of cancer. And what, what I'm looking at are what we call exposures or okay. risk factors. Yeah, <laughs> exposures or risk factors for cancer, but in the population. So I'm not, 
I'm not going to be able to say, you know, to any to any given person, look, I think you have this risk. But what we can say is I'm looking at at um, something that a lot of people in the population are exposed to. And so we, we get an understanding of what is going on in the population. Again, I keep using the word population because that's what it is. It's population science. So it's like a group of people that make up a population, right? That's right. So that's a good, I mean, a kind of reference to when I think about, well, cancer in general, but let's just start with testicular cancer and that whole possibility of a genetic predisposition. Is is that true? Is there a genetic predisposition to testicular cancer? Yes, there is. Uh, Testicular cancer is what we say highly heritable, meaning that it's it's it runs in families. And and we know this. What makes it especially uh, challenging is that it's not like breast cancer, where we have certain genes that we know if they if you have a mutation in them, like in the BRCA1 and 2 genes that that genetic counselors might say to you, oh, you have this mutation in this gene, then we need to, you know, we're not screening the population, you know, for particular uh, mutations in genes for testicular cancer, even though there is that genetic component. But the other thing I would want to say about about genetics goes, it's going to shift from testicular cancer to just cancer broadly. And, and, and that's that cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease caused by mutations, but the mutations aren't always the ones that we inherit. Uh, they, we get mutations all the time after, after birth and the, or, you know, even in the womb, we can get them. But, and these are, most of these are, get healed. Like our body has these mechanisms for healing mutations, but every so often, you know, our mechanism for healing called DNA damage and repair, every now and then that machinery just messes up and a cell will divide and it'll still contain an error. And if it's the right type of error, then a cancer might develop. And so this explains some of the weird weirdness and and you know we all know about smoking and lung cancer but we also all know somebody who's 105 who smokes right. three packs a day and they are fine and they yes. like go running and <laughs> everything and well so it's so weird right and but that doesn't mean that smoking isn't causing mutations that cause cancer it means that it means that 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 person hasn't had the bad luck of of a mutation uh, occurring in just the right spot and then it not being repaired or something like that so it's like cancer is stars lining up in a constellation of really bad luck see that's interesting charlene because uh, I, i'll just talk a, a few minutes because i always wondered i mean i've had thyroid cancer and breast cancer and the thyroid cancer mm-hmm. was caused by exposure to radiation in my teens for acne. And it was what they called light treatments, but it was radiation. And so that's, I think the doctors told me it's pretty much cause and effect, but I wonder then about 
you know, we can get into the environmental side of it too, you know, exposure mm-hmm. to things in the environment. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I just, there's so many components, but I think the, how do researchers or scientists feel about the whole luck angle? I mean, I, gosh, I really hate to think that it's, although doctors have told me this, but, you know, it's like I have, not glaucoma, but cataracts, and it's just your luck that, you know, who knows why you get those, but some people have and some people don't. And does that make sense? Like the luck factor, I'll call it. I just, man, I I don't like it. (laughs) I don't either. I don't either. So that, that's, when we study carcinogens, those those things that cause mutations, uh, they have some key characteristics. And so if we know about these, uh, then we can try to reduce our, our exposure to these. Uh, and that's the good news about cancer is if you know what the carcinogen is, you can, you can, uh, you know, try to avoid it. And so that's one of the reasons why we say don't smoke. <laughs> right, because, right, yes. Right, you know, we can't, we can't always figure out where that mutation is going to happen from the smoking. That's the, that's part of the bad luck. Yep. Okay. And the other, okay. Right. Yeah. 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 And the other bad luck is, you know, sometimes the, the, the machinery that tries to repair it just, you know, gets a quirk and it doesn't work. So, right. so what we do is it's like in, in, you know, a 12 step program, you're, you're doing what you, what you do have control over and and what we do have control over if we know what these exposures are what these risk factors are then we can avoid them um but it's a challenge to figure out what the risk factors are and we know going back to testicular cancer what some of them are well i'd say that's it max was born with one testicle and you know we knew that when he had surgery when he was like 12 months old, 18 months, and they said, oh, there never was another testicle. Don't worry about it, which I now know was not accurate. Um, but that's a risk factor for what I've read about testicular cancer is born with one testicle. You really need to pay attention to your health mm-hmm. long term. So that's just a statement, I guess, of, of being aware of what the ones we can identify, the risk factors. So. <laughs> That, that that's right so in younger age with testicular cancer is is a risk factor younger men are more likely to get this being white being european ancestry we don't know why but that's a, a risk factor and of course isn't that it, that's not one we can do anything about right <laughs> except right. for <laughs> but you know just generally no but having a family history uh, or a personal history of testicular cancer. Um, carcinoma in situ, that is, uh, are, that, that's just the, that's essentially the transform, the possible transformation into it being malignant, but that is, we call it a risk factor because not everybody who has carcinoma in situ uh, uh, goes on to have the malignant version. Being tall, who knows why? And having the undescended testicle. Yeah. So those are what we we consider more or less established risk factors. These are things that maybe a, a physician would be thinking about. Like if you told them, you know, there was testicular cancer in the family, they might ask questions about these things. But what I'm doing is looking for the unestablished risk factors, the things that the things that we don't have general agreement on yet, but there's some some signal that there might be. A, a, a reason to 
think that it that this is something we might be able to do something about. So does that relate to uh, what you're doing research-wise on DNA and ribosomes? Is that something you want to share with us too? Work yeah, with cancer. That, right. Well, that's that's similar, and and but a different pathway that we think of. Uh, so it's a different set of risk factors with with the ribosomes. So ribosomes are machines. Uh, we, or, I mean, that's the metaphor for them. So we have our DNA and the DNA contains information. Well, we have to get that information made into proteins and the ribosomes take the message and turn the message into a protein. So it's fundamental. If, if there's a, even a minor error in that machine or process, then you can end up predisposed to uh, all sorts of problems and and so that that's why i i'm interested at this point in looking at that molecular mechanism um that that takes us a bit away from from testicular cancer but there uh, but but it's it's you know i who you know who knows um i i don't i haven't i don't think that there's a relationship at this point between ribosomes and testicular cancer um, but the idea of looking for molecular mechanisms is is similar. And, you know, maybe we can talk, uh, um, if there's time, about uh, some of the, the molecular parts. But I think I have some, you know, just general, you know, thoughts about just getting into just saying a little bit more about test, the biology of testicular sure, yeah. cancer. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. okay, yeah. So I think that'll help us get into some of the hypotheses for uh, risk factors that are specific for testicular cancer. So before doing that, this is what I know of testicular cancer. So most testicular cancers that impact young men are what we call testicular germ cell tumors. And these arise from something we just mentioned, testicular carcinoma in situ. And and what this is, is are, are cells that, that haven't but could migrate outside of the walls of the seminiferous tubules. So testicular carcinoma in situ is believed to arise from arrested gonocytes, ones that fail to differentiate. So gonocytes then are the precursors to sperm cells. So what we're talking about here is what, what's going wrong in, in the most common types of testicular cancer are, are, uh, are some there's a, are these particular cells, the, the, the cells that are, that become the sperm. So gonocytes, these cells that become the sperm, they, they differentiate even from something else that is more broad. And that's the primordial germ cells. And they do this early in the, the fetal, fetal development around week seven in the fetus. So this means that if something stunts them, so when we say it stunts them, it means that we're, it's going to stop them from developing in the way that they should. So if something stunts them at that phase, this happens early, early on in life, which is why we were saying that testicular cancer, most, most men who get it, get it early on between, you know, 15 to 45 in, in that range. And this means that the, the transformation happens very early on in life. So when, when stunted, the gonocytes, they, they can't, they, well, they, they can't go on. And so uh, what we think happens is they stay stunted until puberty. 
and then transform into this carcinoma in situ. And Hmm. yep. Yeah. And so that's the the most common types of testicular cancer um, uh, come from carcinoma in situ. And these are our seminomas and the non-seminomas and Max had a non-seminoma, right? Yeah. He had cardiocarcinoma. So it was non-seminoma. So yeah. Yeah. And non-seminomas tend to present earlier than the, the seminomas. And so that kind of, you know, explains why, because how, how old was Max when he was diagnosed? He was uh, 22. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that's consistent with the, so non-seminosis, people who have the seminomas, they could be diagnosed, you know, 10 years later or so, you know, that, speaks also to the possibility of it you know of this hap this is whatever's happening is going on pretty early okay that's interesting to me just to think about that and that that's probably what happened with him because you know the undescended testicle was there and it just Mm -hmm. didn't come down and um we didn't find it or know about it i guess and so it, it yeah as you just described it became malignant or cancerous so Mm-hmm. That's. I think that's good information, though, for our listeners just to understand that in terms of checking. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, promotion out there for uh, testicular cancer awareness, so that saying that you know, men check your balls or you know, pay attention and yeah. um, and. But there's other kinds of cancer, like what Max had, that didn't show up in his uh, testicles. You know, it was mm-hmm. in his you know abdomen, but. Um, uh. Anyway, I think that's, I appreciate you going into that and explaining it because I think that's something I didn't really understand and I, it's, it's helpful to know that. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think that that brings us to some of the, the, the hypotheses that are, that are specific for testicular cancer. And part of these come from these two, there are these two questions that are, um, that are out there for testicular cancer and they're, they're related to critical periods. So what's happening early on in life that's, that's stunting these pre-sperm cells and making them go dormant? So this is all invisible, right, to us. We don't know what's happening. I mean, most of us don't know that this might be happening, but it's, it's this, so something happening early on. And then also what happens at puberty that for some reason these cells go from being dormant to uh, this, this, what we to the carcinoma in situ that possibly could become testicular cancer. So there we have it. So okay. something might be happening early on that might, because it's early on, that implies heritable genetics. So that, that's one thing. But also the things that can possibly influence the development um, in, in the womb. And then we have the what something that might be happening during puberty that might increase risk. And so I'll start with the latter. I'll start by talking about something that might happen during puberty (laughs) or later. Yeah. 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 So interestingly, uh, marijuana has been on the rise at the same time that uh, cases of testicular cancer have increased. And uh, so marijuana is not considered to be an established risk factor, but there's a hypothesis that it might increase risk for it by impacting uh, the endocrine 
or the reproductive systems. So it, you know, I mean, there are edibles and there are, you know, and it's just smoking it. So those would, you would think that maybe the edibles would be more involved in the endocrine um, bits, but the, if you're smoking marijuana, then you would be exposed to some of the, uh, the, potential carcinogens that are just from smoke as well. So it's, it, it's difficult to figure out exactly what aspect of marijuana might be doing right. what, right. right? And But in 2009, there was a, a study done in, in Seattle in, uh, at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, which is incidentally, that's where I did my dissertation uh, for my PhD. Uh, and they found uh, that there was an increased risk for testicular cancer among current marijuana smokers compared to healthy controls, and that this was primarily an increased risk for non-seminomas. Really? And, okay. Uh, yes, non-seminomas. And uh, they also saw that, that those who started smoking marijuana at a younger age and were using more of it were also at a a greater increased risk. So that's, that's highly suggestive data, but it's one study. Right. Okay. And it's important to emphasize too, I think. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So they're, they're picking up on a potential signal. So since then, other people have looked at, into this in, in various ways. And so there have been what we call meta analyses. And this is where, you know, the, several studies are combined together and people kind of look at the evidence across them. And so they looked for patterns in the published literature uh, and uh, in, in some of these meta-analyses that have been done. And they concluded that the, the, the signal between marijuana and non-seminomas seems credible. So that, that's, that's another piece of evidence. It's still not definitive, uh, but it's saying that when you look at not just one study, but several studies, the signal still is there, and they said that the the strength of the evidence is is weak. So what this this really means is that it it looks like there might be something there, and there are some unanswered questions, and maybe it has to do with you know whether it, the route, what we call the route of exposure, was this um, was this due to as I said a, a minute ago the smoking and the is it the is it the, what's happening with some of the uh, chemicals in the smoke versus the cannabinoids, which might be more relevant for <laughs> your right. reproductive system. It's an important question that we don't have an answer to yet with a, with suggestive evidence. So if, if it were me and, and I were a man uh, and there was a family history of testicular cancer, I would probably avoid marijuana, but again, this is that that's just being cautious and we don't, there's not enough evidence out there. So that's kind of the unsatisfying thing about a lot of the uh, you know, hypotheses is that's exactly what they are. They're hypotheses. <laughs> well, and I, the other thing I think when I listen to this too, is to, and it takes me back to the, the luck factor, but mm-hmm. so Mm-hmm. And I would agree with you if I were a, a young man and knew this and had a family history, I would try to avoid marijuana too. And it's, I think it's like so many things out there that it really comes back to being trying to be as healthy as you can be and mm-hmm. avoid, I guess, what we 
what's the right term? I was going to say known risk factors, but like alcohol, drinking alcohol, there's, you know, many studies out there that talk about cut it out completely, have one drink, have, you know, it, and so it's like, I, I think that's the challenge of being human, perhaps, is we all have to decide yeah. how much are we, ever risk will we take, you know, and it, I think yeah. it's very easy to fall into the, oh, it won't happen to me attitude, you know, and you don't know. I mean, I think that's life, but you bring up another, you know, a good point for people to know about and just think about, you know, what, what do you want to do if you have that risk factor in your family for testicular cancer? So. Yeah. 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 That's right. When, and in this case, it would be kind of an, an informed guess to say we we don't know if it will make a, you know, if it would make a carcinoma in situ that might be there transform, we don't know. So then to, to switch on from something that is a little bit more satisfying. Okay, I like that. <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned radiation. And, and so I wanted to bring up a, a, a there's been a longstanding question in, in cancer research about what we uh, call transgenerational radiation exposure and what what this means is a question of whether whether if you have been exposed to radiation and um, you're not yet pregnant or if your partner to be has been exposed to radiation um, is that exposure having some impact on your um, body in a way that it would make a uh, the mark of that heritable so could your future children inherit the radiation exposure the mutations that 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 possibly okay. come with that so the question is so if if a person has been exposed to radiation will their future children have an increased risk of cancer and so there's been a a recent paper that i thought i could uh, share because it, it it has an interesting answer to this question which is <laughs> okay. So uh, there, this uh, this is a little bit of background on this. Uh, it's a it's a statement that you know is, is kind of uh, uh, funny to say out loud, but it's most nearly all of our uh, DNA, you know that which we are born with, right? <laughs> come, comes from our parents. But the funny part about that statement is saying nearly. All because you can think, well, how in the world can I have some DNA that I didn't get from my parents? <laughs> yes, you're right. So yeah, yeah. So that so that that's what I wanted to to explain right here. So I say nearly all because we can have some there random mutations in our DNA that that we didn't inherit from either the mom or dad, and these mutations are are what we call de novo which just means new they're they're new so it, and they're these are known we we know we know that they happen uh and they're an important sor- source of evolution um so uh we so, so so some of these you know might make us more resilient some of these might cause disease you know depending on the luck of draw we think that some of these de novo mutations can increase risk for autism for for example um, so these are, yeah, so this is, wow, interesting. These, yes. Yeah, so these sorts of, 
mutations are what were being looked at in this this paper and that I'm about to say. So scientists wondered, speaking of radiation, whether the children that were born from the Chernobyl uh, nuclear power plant accident, you know, whether the Chernobyl survivors, the children of the Chernobyl survivors had extra de novo mutations. So if the children had more of these mutations than the rest of us, that might predispose them to cancer because you would think, you know, the idea is that the radiation from the Chernobyl meltdown causes mutations in the parents' uh, gametes. So in their eggs or the sperm cells. Okay. All right. And so sent, you know, so that, that, that's why we can say that they're new mutations because, you know, they, they, the parents don't in the, in the parents' bodies, they don't have them. But if it's, if the radiation mutated the DNA that's in the eggs or the sperm, that's why it's called new. So, so mutation mutations in the DNA or the, of the eggs or the sperm are, you know, if it's in the sperm, this is going to be relevant for testicular cancer, uh, possibly. But fortunately, and this is why I say it's somewhat satisfying, <laughs> is, is, yeah, the results of the study revealed that the children of the Chernobyl survivors did not have more of these new mutations than the rest of us. And it, it doesn't, this is one study, but it's a, um, but it's, it's, it's hopeful. And I, I think, you know, when we, when we think about all of the terrible things that are out there, there's at least some evidence that this is, that there, this reduces the, the concern for this particular exposure. And, you know, I think what it also says is how a certain uh, things affect uh, DNA or mutations and other factors, you know, in the environment don't. And it's, that's why we need people like you who can study it and just, you know, help us understand if those things are going to affect us, like radiation exposure or anything that is that it could be other things in the environment. So um, it, it's, I think it's fascinating just to, you know, because I would think watching that Chernobyl program that I was on one of the, oh, the, like, Netflix or one of the, I was going to say stations, but platforms is the word. I mean, it was a horrific, horrific um, incident. And you, what happened there in that town is still uh, abandoned, but the kids were okay. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, um, you know, I can see why you, uh, you must enjoy what you do because there's so many stories and not stories, but just evidence and, and things that you uncover when you are looking at um, genetics and mm-hmm. the things that you do. So, right. Well, speaking of, of genetics again, so I have a, a few more thoughts going oh, back yeah, go to ahead. The, the, the familial end. Yes. So I, you know, uh, the, we've been, uh, we, we, one of the established risk factors is the family history of testicular cancer. But there's some research that is suggesting that it might not be only a family history of testicular cancer, but a family history of other cancers too. And so this this comes from some work that's been done in, in Norway. And so they observed increased risks for testicular cancer and families that, that may have underlying 
cancer predisposition. And so it, that's something, again, it's one paper, but it's saying that, well, maybe, maybe there's a broader predisposition to, to cancer. Um, so it would, and that suggests that there might be a mechanism, not, I don't think it's the ribosomes, but, but something that is kind of global like that, that might be able to affect multiple organs. Because if you have, if you have in a family, an aunt and, you know, and, 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 a, and a brother and a great grandma who all have these different types of cancer. And you see that that is associated with testicular cancer. That's interesting. And so that suggests that there's something that is uh, a, a general mechanism that's another avenue of, of research is determining whether the, the cancer predisposition for testicular cancer is broader than what happens in testis. Interesting, because I have that kind of family background. All of my aunts and my birth mother all had some kind of cancer. Boy, another thing to just think about and maybe learn more, um, just in terms of my own background. So anything else on your um, studies or hypotheses that we should no, that you well. The only thing that the only thing else that's really coming to mind for me right now is uh, it gets more molecular and okay. So what we were, but one one thing I mentioned with with marijuana is that it's possibly an endocrine disruptor, and so when we think about something that's going to be mess with your endocrine system, how could that possibly do that? And so we have. Uh, what we call molecular mechanisms or something that may be endo- the, the way in which an exposure uh, has an endocrine disrupting effect might be through these molecular mechanisms. And so I don't want to go too far into the deep end. Okay. About what that is, but in our previous conversations, you've brought up something that is a potential endocrine disruptor and uh so i don't know uh, these are those uh, i hesitate to try to say this but i'm gonna try okay (laughs) so these per and 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 polyfloral alcohol substances pfas yes yes the pfas so these are, are these ubiquitous synthetic chemicals that have been around since the 1940s. They're in, used in industrial manufacturing and in household products. And when we say ubiquitous, this is this is because a lot of our products have them. And most people, if they're tested, will have in the U.S. will have some of these uh, in their bodies. So we know that diet, water, household products, food packaging. All of these are potential sources of, of these chemicals. And um, the, there's a uh, group of people that over in, in uh, France called the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And what they do is set the kind of global standards for what is considered to be a carcinogen. And uh, yeah, that, that's what they do. And so they, they classified different exposures into whether we think they are or aren't uh, a carcinogen. And they, they classified these PFAS as being possibly carcinogens, which means that there's some evidence that they may be, but 
but uh, we don't, again, they don't have definitive evidence. What we've seen is that is that they are, they're possibly endocrine disruptors that increase the risk for uh, disorders in, in males that start early in life, and including undescended testes. Wow. Okay. That's, yeah. And I read several articles about it, and it's, it's one of those chemicals, like you were, I mean, it's out there, and it's uh, something we weren't aware of, and... To our discussion about the different research papers that are out there, hopefully there'll be some more uh, study into this and its relationship, if there is one, to testicular cancer. But I think one of the articles I had read and I mentioned to you was the, oh, just a young man in Ohio who had, who had this, who had testicular cancer twice, I think, and they thought related to this. And then also there's been another area of Ohio that they're studying mm-hmm. for this um, appearance of this uh, chemical or this compound, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, in the water. So it, it's people are aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I, I had read the study that was done in the mid-Ohio Valley near a chemical plant where drinking water was contaminated with this. And so the authors in this case were, it were interested in, in cancers generally, but they had an a priori a hypothesis that they would that they would see a particular increased risk for testicular cancer, and this comes from some um, animal studies where they'd seen that some of these chemicals can impair testosterone production. Oh wow! And, okay. Yeah, and and induce some um, Leydig cell adenomas in tumors in rats, and so they had this knowledge from from what they'd seen in animals, and they so they when they were wanting to know whether the people who lived near this chemical plant, if there was an increased risk in cancer for them, they were particularly interested in whether they would see more testicular cancer. And in fact, they did. And yeah, yeah. so that's, that's pretty suggestive evidence. Uh, and, but this is currently being studied at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, they're looking at this, a big study uh, in relation to contaminated water with, with PFAS. In particular, it, it appears that the firefighting foams uh, are, you know, emitters of, of some of these that then get gets into water. And so what they're looking at are um, military sites that, uh, and I'm not sure why military sites in particular, but maybe that maybe maybe military sites are more. I don't know, maybe they use more of these products as, as possible. So they, but so they, they've got a Department of Defense study uh, where they're they're looking at uh, whether military personnel are are exposed to PFAS through through water. And they've got a case control study uh, on this that that that's underway. So I think there's going to be some interesting results that come out from that. Yes. But I don't know. I don't know if they're still at the uh, quantifying it stage, or you know, if they're still collecting data. So I don't know how long that'll be. But it's 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 hopeful that they they'll you know they'll they'll have it, it'll be informative. Right. It sounds like it because there's that's a lot of different people. I mean, populations of people, the military and firefighters and uh, young men. So I mean, it's a uh, It'll be something worth watching, I think. Um, yeah. So 
as we talk about all the things we've talked about, but going back to testicular cancer, just from your perspective as a researcher in this area, do you have any um, thoughts on what people should be aware of around test? I mean, general thoughts of, you know, a young man with testicular cancer, family, caregivers, any, uh, any thoughts about things to think about or be aware of? You know, I, I think that's an important question. Uh, you know, as I was, preparing for this podcast i uh, this is about a month ago maybe maybe a month and a half ago i put a question out there to the twitter verse to people on twitter to see a poll just to see if anybody knew what the risk factors were for testicular cancer or if people even knew that it impacted younger men and so I, I think what I got back from that is, first of all, most people know nothing about it. Oh, <laughs> so, that's, oh, Charlene. Okay, at least we, that's, I think that's interesting. And I agree with you based on the people I've talked to. They don't know anything about it. So go ahead. They don't, Didn't mean they, to don't, they don't know anything about it. So whereas in contrast, if you ask people about prostate cancer, you know, people are, people will, will generally have more to say about that. Um, so the, people don't know that this is something that happens to young men. It, generally, people don't know, and they, they don't know about the undescended testis. So I think that it seems so obvious maybe to, to you and I, you know, but for people that have no reason to be thinking about it, uh, aren't thinking about it. So I, I think that that just continuing to uh, have some public education uh, that this is something that uh, happens to, to young men. Yes. And I, yeah, I think so too. And I know some of the survivors I've talked to were like, no, we knew nothing about this when, you know, I found a lump on my testicle or whatever. And it's, uh, I guess that's, I want to say maybe that's true for all of us, but with different kinds of cancer, but um, yes, public education is very much needed. I would agree. Um, So my last question, Charlene, is really about what's next for you and your research or just anything you're doing that you'd like to share with us. Yeah. So I'm interested in cancer predisposition. And so uh, whatever uh, as we had said at one point in, in the earlier in the talk, it, this is throwing whatever at it that I have to throw at it. So right now I'm, I'm looking at, at ribosomes, but there's something called uh, epigenetics that is uh, a, one of those molecular mechanisms that I'm, that I, I, I'm currently, I have some projects that are, that are looking at, at that. And I, I'm going to continue to fig- to look at both the heritable genetic component, but then how that interacts with the environmentals and those environmentals being, you know, some of them trying to, you know, figure out how much evidence there is, you know, like, like with marijuana uh, uh, for, for testicular cancer. I, that seems such a broad answer to the, to the, the question, but I'm at this, this point where, mm, you know, my, yeah, that my general goal is to, you know, continue with the molecular mechanisms. Uh, and, uh, but I, I, there's, yeah, there's, speaking of luck, there's some part of being a scientist where you end up 
going with the flow of things. So r- right now I'm, I'm looking at, yeah, the ribosomes and, and aging and, but how that morphs into the future is, is, is hard to say because it, it depends on, will we get a grant in this, you know? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So you, your, your research in the, ends up, you know, you follow the, uh, the, the, the trail of, 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 of grants. And so it, it's a combination of those sorts of things, but yeah, so I'm, I don't, I don't know, but I can, I can say that, that, that talking to you has, has reinvigorated my interest in, in, in exposures that happen early on in life. Okay. Well then we'll have you back to talk about that. So, um, <laughs> sir, you know, I think it's so interesting. It, I think your perspective helped me a lot to understand some of the dynamics of cancer. And I think for some of our listeners too, because, we talk a lot about survivorship or with survivors, but I think getting down into why it, why it's there is, is really important to know as well. So I thank you for taking the time to do this with me. Yes. Thank you so much. And I, I think that your, your podcast is, is very important for the world and, and education and getting knowledge out there and, you know, for survivors, but also for researchers, because the more that we interact with families, the more that it becomes real and gives us to, to think more about the mechanisms because it's very much like being that the chaplain where you face the situation where there's this unknown and then you want to try and figure out how to fix it and fix the unknown. So I think that's great. I, I admire what you're doing. Well, thank you. I really appreciate those kind words, Charlene, and I think it's a good way to, to end our program. And I did mean it. I would love to have you come back sometime down the road with some more insights for us. So thank you. Great. I would be happy to. Thank you, too. Thank you for joining me today on Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer from the Max Mallory Foundation. Go to maxmalloryfoundation.com to learn more about testicular cancer, to donate, and send your suggestions for guests on the podcast. And join me next time for Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer.